0: Hey, we are in the middle of this series called uh, Is Anyone Out There? Kind of learning how to talk to God through prayer. And I, I remember growing up, um, I grew up in church. I grew up, you know, learning about all kinds of different things in the church. And one of the scary parts of, like, growing up in church was, like, when you learned about the rapture and end times and all that kind of stuff. Like, this idea that, like, there's going to be a certain group of people that are snatched away at some point in the future. And there was this fear inside of me, like, what if I'm not one of those people and I remember one time we were we were growing up I was young and I don't remember all of a sudden everybody in the house was gone and I was like home by myself and I'm like anyone anyone there mom dad Jay like and I my first thought was The rapture's happened, and I missed it. Like, they're gone. They're gone. They just, like, gone gone outside to do yard work or whatever. I don't know what it was, but I was like, it was like in an instant, I was all of a sudden by myself and, like, just felt so alone. And I don't know how you have approached prayer in your life over the years, but there's sometimes when I'm praying where I just feel like I'm either talking to the ceiling or talking to myself or I don't understand, is anyone really out there listening? And usually most of our prayers are often linked to some kind of event in our day or or our life, right? Like mealtime, let's pray. Bedtime, let's pray. Church service, pray. Bad news comes, let's pray. We want our teams to win. We pray. We pray the Mets win tonight. You know, we need a miracle. We're praying for that tonight. And a lot of times when we pray these kind of things, you know, we find ourselves where we're needing something. We want God to change something. I remember a few years ago, I had the opportunity with a good friend of mine to visit Korea And we went to Seoul and uh, had some amazing foods. But there were some times when I would sit down at a table and I was not sure what was set in front of me. I wasn't sure what this dish was and what it would taste like. And I remember that as I would pray, I would pray, Dear God, please let this be appetizing when it hits my lips. I don't care what it tastes like. Please let me just enjoy it when it happens. Or maybe you've been caught in the city before, right? And you're out walking around or you're on a subway. And all of a sudden, not to be, you know, a little blue or whatever, but you have to go to the restroom. Like, it just hits you. And you start praying, dear God, show me a restroom in this city. Like, that is like a true miracle. You turn a corner, like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's like heaven on earth, a clean restroom in this city when you're out and in need of one. And all of these things, you know, maybe you pray, God, the lottery's $300 million. If you allow me to win, I will give most of it away. But just help me to win, like something that I need or I want. And prayer often becomes more of a response to a circumstance or a pressing need in our life rather than an actual practice of pursuing and developing intimacy in a relationship with our Creator. And this is why we're doing this series. Because even maybe as weird as prayer may seem at times or as difficult to understand as it may seem, it is not just a religious, religious practice of our faith. But when we better understand its purpose and its power, it becomes a vital part of our faith and our relationship with God. So we're in Luke 11 is where we're studying. Most of, the chapter, most of it will be on the screen uh, today. Uh, in the context of Luke 11, Jesus is reshaping the thought of his disciples. His disciples have watched him pray and now they want to learn how to pray from him. Not as some show or some ritual, but this genuine conversation with his father in heaven. And today we continue our look at this model that Jesus gives his disciples. And this is what we'll be looking at over the next few weeks is model prayer. And we're going to look at the next example today of how Jesus tells his disciples to pray. And so let's just read Luke Luke 11, verse 2 right quick, and it'll be on the screen. And for some of you, according to what translation you have, there are parts of this that are not in some translations and not in the others, but it is found in the the model prayer that is both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11, and it says this. He said, When you pray, say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. And I want to remind us, we've talked about this every week, and we talk about when we pray. What is prayer? Too many of us just use that idea of prayer is a practice, prayer is something I do at night, whatever. But what is prayer? And when we looked at the root words of what prayer is in this terminology that, that Jesus is using here and, and that the gospel writers are using here, prayer means a couple things. It means moving into God's presence for an advantageous purpose. That's what it means. Those two words mean to move into the presence of God to gain advantage. Not advantage over someone else, but advantage over your circumstances or your lack of understanding or your lack of knowledge or your lack of just whatever it is you gain advantage. And this speaks to the much deeper meaning of what prayer really is. It's not a response, but instead it is an initiative we take in order to move closer to God in order to put ourselves into the most advantageous position to step forward into whatever the next step of our life and faith journey is. Prayer is a conduit that God gives us to be able to directly access his presence and all that comes with that. And last week, we looked at this first part of it where it says, pray to your Father in heaven whose name is hallowed. And we reminded ourselves that his name and nature, and the pre- or this God is our parent and provider of this father who can see further and understand better than any of us can from his perspective in heaven. And his character and nature is unique, holy, and gracious. And we pray to this father in heaven who is good and wants good for us. We don't, we don't beg. We're not coming as beggars. We're not coming as unknown people to him. He knows us. He is our parent He can see all that's going on farther than we can see. And he has a gracious nature that's ready to respond. And this helps us to remember this key idea to remember who we're having this conversation with. We're having this conversation with this amazing father in heaven who has a hallowed name and character. There's a memorable part of this prayer that reminds us of this, of who we are praying to. And now we're going to jump into the next part where it says now we know who we're praying to. Now we say this, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. And what we're going to see today is not only prayer is memorable, what we looked at last week, but prayer is tangible. It brings tangible things into our life. And it says here that your kingdom and your will be done. Now this idea of kingdom and will are going to be the context by which we understand the next models of prayer that are poured out there over the next couple of weeks. The second statement gives us, both here in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, this idea of how to pray and to pray for God's kingdom and will to come. It sounds great. What does that even mean? Right, how many times have you heard that? And we prayed that. You know, We recite it before our game or before, so your, your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay, good, thanks. And we just move on to the next parts of our prayer. We don't, we don't ever stop and think about that. Maybe you've heard these two statements before. You've recited them. But what we want to do today is really ask, what does it mean to have his kingdom come and his will be done? I think too often this aspect of the model prayer of Jesus has been used in unhealthy and unintended ways. But these key statements are important to understand the correct way because they are the context by which the model of the prayer that we're going to follow lays out that we're praying to. And the key thing is remember this. Remember what we are having a conversation about last week we reminded ourselves who we're talking to this week we remind ourselves what we're talking about and it's god's kingdom and god's will so let's jump into this what is god's kingdom when you hear this prayer may your kingdom come if we aren't careful we can view this as a command to go out and conquer right it's this kingdom versus that kingdom When we think of kingdom, we equate it to a ruler that we must defend, an enemy that we must defeat. We think of an enemy that has to be defeated. And we start taking sides. What happens is this. We create division. We want to establish heaven on earth now, or at least in my city, my community, my state, my country. And so we draw battle lines. And we start to attack other people that we view as on the other side. We start to see people from other cultures, from other political viewpoints, from different moral standings as the enemy that is keeping the kingdom of God from coming. We get angry. We we start thinking of it as our job to defend God, to battle for him, to define and defeat evil, to create heaven on earth. But the truth is this. Listen to this this morning. God doesn't need you in his army. Our God is not so small that he needs us to defend him and fight for him. God isn't hiding in heaven, hoping that we win a battle and take some ground for him. God is victory. He is victory. God has all power in heaven and earth. He can move mountains and shape the thoughts of man without lifting a single finger. He doesn't need us to fight for him. To be honest, I'm glad I don't serve a God who needs me to be his avenger and protector. My God is my avenger and my protector. Whom shall I fear? So then why is, what is the kingdom of God? I believe that these teaching, the teachings of Jesus and the way that he lived his life and demonstrated the character and nature of God are the best ways to define the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. right? He didn't create a political party. He didn't build an army. No, what Jesus did and taught was that God's kingdom was about two things. God's kingdom is defined by community and compassion. Community and compassion. And we could spend a whole series just looking at these two concepts and how Jesus taught and modeled them. But let's just briefly look at a section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look through it real quick of how Jesus laid this out. If you're familiar with this, it's over in Matthew 5. You don't have to turn there. Just concepts I'm going to give you. He starts off the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and he uses that terminology of kingdom of God a lot. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemaker. And he says this about these people, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will inherit the earth. They will see God. They will be called sons and daughters of God. Who will be? The poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, the pure in heart, the peacemaker. This is who and what represents the kingdom of God. Not defending God, not being in his army, but instead being humble, pure in heart, meek, a peacemaker. All right, what about our enemies and those that have hurt us, right? He goes on later in Matthew 5 to said, hey, when, when somebody attacks you instead of an eye for an eye, what? Turn the other cheek. When somebody asks you for your tunic, for your for your shirt, give them your coat as well. When somebody asks you to carry their bag a mile, go the extra mile. It says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in these things, you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You're not perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect when you are fighting, battling, but what, when you're doing what? Forgiving, showing compassion going the extra mile, standing in the gap, not retaliating evil with evil, but praying for those who persecute you. That's the kingdom that Jesus relates here. What about giving to the needy? This idea of showing compassion. He says, don't give to impress others. In Matthew 6, he said, instead, meet true needs and keep it a secret. And what? Your father in heaven will see you when you do that. That's God seeing and respecting what you're doing when you give to the needy, not out of show, not out of pretense, but out in secret, when you really can just do somebody to help somebody, and you show compassion in the midst of all that. And In the middle of that, that's where God sees you. That's where you become one with God and understand the kingdom of God. Again, we could spend the rest of our time talking about just these three ideas, But they show us this idea that the kingdom of heaven, what it is and what our father sees and rewards is not when we fight for him, not when we're in the Lord's army, but when we are his foot soldiers for building community with others, when we are peacemakers, meek, humble, praying for enemies and showing compassion to others by turning the other cheek, giving, forgiving and going farther with love for anybody else. That's the call of the kingdom. And that's what we Pray, and this changes how we pray when we think about that being the kingdom of God. And it it changes how we understand prayer. It's not praying for victory, for God to overcome. I'm praying for God to show me how to know him better, how to build bridges to other people in my life, how to serve and love others, even my enemies, how to be a person that desires community and compassion. That's what I'm praying for. That's praying the kingdom of God of God. And here's the key idea. The tangible expression of God's kingdom when we pray it is peace in my life and in the relationships I have with others. If I have community and compassion, if that's what I'm trying to bring in by being a peacemaker, humble, forgiving, compassionate, building community, it will bring peace. And that's what Christ brought as well. So when you pray for the kingdom, that tangible thing that's going to show up in our life is peace, and the implication is this. Prayer can bring, bring, uh, excuse me, bring peace into any circumstance in any relationship in my life. By praying, peace can come into my life when I pray for the kingdom to come. The kingdom to come means peace to come in my life and in my relationships. Are you praying for that kind of kingdom in your life, in your world, in your community, in your church, that we would be people of peace. People that are experiencing the kingdom of God, not trying to just advance the kingdom of God, but taking his peace wherever we go. What about God's will then? We hear this statement, you know, may your will be done. If we aren't careful, we can switch the idea here too to something that was never meant to be. We can view it as a command to impose law, rule, and moral codes upon other people. We can equate God's will to rules, laws, obedience, and conformity. And here's what happens when we do that. We create a standard to follow and if you don't agree, then you are outside of God's will and must be punished. And then we too often take on the role of judge, jury, and executioner in determining the payment and penalty for what? For not following the rules and law of God. And we start to become judgmental, moralistic, unreasonable, compassion, and community fade. And we start to add to to that even more laws and rules and ways of living that God never laid out in his law. And we create division and animosity. And we put endless effort into changing the laws of our community and country to align with what we think God's will is and what God's law is. But I want you to hear this. Yet the truth is we can't even live up to those own standards that we put on others. We fall short. There is no law so powerful are punishment so threatening that can deter the heart of man from sin. I wish there was. I wish we could make a law that was so strong and a punishment so severe that I would never sin again. But you know what? It says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. It's a pretty strong payment. Do you know what I still struggle with? Sin. Still struggle with I, I know what the laws of God are. There are some very, like ones that are, we don't even argue about, right? Like Boom, Ten Commandments. We can hold on. Let's, you know, do not steal. Like, don't, okay. But people still steal. It's clear. Judgment's there. The rule's there. The punishment's there. But people still do it. There is no law so powerful or punishment so threatening that it will deter the heart of man for sin. Punitive measures, prison time, and even the death penalty don't equate to the eradication of sin and disobedience. And when we, go that direction, we end up excusing the sin in our own lives, attributing to personal shortcomings, circumstantial challenges that we face, while we shine the spotlight on the same sin in others' lives with no heart for compassion or understanding. This is not God's will. This is not what we pray for. It isn't something we have to impose that we enact and try to ensnare people with. This isn't even what Jesus did. While God is perfect and calls us to live holy lives and challenges us to step away from sin and move toward righteousness, the way he deals with our unfaithfulness is not through stricter laws, more punitive measures, or anything like that. Jesus didn't come and say, all right, you guys didn't listen to the first 10. I'm going to give you 50 more. You didn't listen to those. Now God's sending somebody. Here's 100 more. He doesn't burden us with more law, more punitive measures. What does he do? It said it's says instead it was through his kindness and hopefulness and healing that restoration came listen to romans 2 this is what paul says happens in our lives when we get this way when we think god's will is something to be imposed these are tough words it says therefore you have no excuse man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, but do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We must stop thinking it's our job to be God's instrument of judgment and justice, Instead, we are to do what verse 4 says here. We are to lean into his kindness, into his forbearance, into his patience, knowing that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So then what is God's will? Again, I believe that the teachings of Jesus, the way that he lived his life and demonstrated character and nature of God are the best way to define what God's will is. Jesus, again, didn't come to enact more laws to create a stronger justice system or punitive system. He instead came to bring hope and healing, and that's what God's will is defined as, hope and healing. God's will is hope and healing. When you look at the stories of Jesus all throughout Scripture, you find times that he came to broken people, physically, spiritually, emotionally, broken. You know what's true about every one of us in here? We're broken. Jesus finds us broken broken and it's his kindness that leads us out of that brokenness into hope and healing look at look at just three examples of times he met people at a physical need and what he did with them in mark 10 jesus meets this man who's been blind since birth and the man calls out he hears jesus is coming and he calls out to jesus heal me heal me and jesus stops hearing this here's the man stops a man who's been blind since birth and he stops and heals the man Sends him on his way, and he says, "Your faith has made you whole." Jesus, in the midst of blindness, stops and heals. Do you know what I often struggle with in my life? Is spiritual blindness. I don't. I I teach things every Sunday that I wish I could live out every Monday through Saturday, but I struggle. I fail because I have these spiritual blinders on. I still get angry at people. I still am selfish. Still, am greedy lustful prideful all of these things blind me to the glory of god and I, there's times i cry out god help me and he does he steps in and re- removes my blinders and reminds me of the glory of god then there's a story in mark 2 i love this story where this group of friends come to this house that jesus is teaching in they tear open the roof and literally drop their paralyzed friend onto the ground in front of jesus i guess they're like he's already paralyzed You know, what's the worst that could happen? And they drop him in front of Jesus, and Jesus stops his teaching, and he heals the man. He heals the man and sends them on their way. He says, your faith again has made you whole. How many times in our life have I been stuck in a place and I don't feel like I can move forward? And my faith and relationships or my marriage or as a parent or as a friend, I get stuck in my vocation, whatever it is, and I need, to, I need somebody to come, a friend to drag me out and slap me in front of Jesus and say, I need help. And Jesus in the midst, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't get angry, he heals. He says, get up and walk. Keep moving forward. Don't look back, look forward. One of my favorite times that Jesus does is found in, in Mark 5. It says this synagogue leader comes to Jesus, and when you see a synagogue leader, it means probably a Pharisee, right? Somebody who was not really on Jesus' team at the time. And he shows up and asks Jesus come to heal his dying daughter. Jesus listens to the man, he comes with the man, and when they get there, they learn that the daughter is dead. But Jesus still, in the midst of <clears throat> hopelessness, walks in and brings her back to life. Brings life where there is death. And oh, how many times have I felt in my life complete hopelessness? There's no way out. I don't see a way forward. Pain is too much. Guilt is too much. But yet in the midst of that, Jesus stops and brings life where there was no life, brings hope where there is no hope. Again, we could spend the rest of our time talking about just these three encounters, but they show this idea of God's will isn't to walk in a room and point out what's wrong, who is wrong, and what must change. Instead, it is to walk into someone's life and bring a new hope, a new healing that will transform their understanding of who God is and what he wants for their life. This changes how we pray and how we understand prayer. It's not praying for laws to change or court decisions or political races to be won. It is not praying for moral codes to be enacted or for God to get control of our country again and impose his will on all of us. No, I'm praying for God to show me the places in my life where I can show his kindness that leads to repentance, where I need to repent, where I need hope and healing so that I can then take it to desperate situations and other people's lives. The tangible expression of God's will is this, faith. If God's kingdom, the tangible expression uh, was peace, the tangible expressions of God's will when we pray is faith in my life and the life of others. And here's the implication. Prayer can grow my faith in order to strengthen my desire to follow God. You know what happened in all those situations? Jesus healed a blind man, paralytic man, brought somebody back to life. People started following him at a deeper level. They stepped out in faith. They changed the way they thought. They went a different direction. And that's what happens in our life when we begin to pray for God's will to happen in my life. So how do we pray for God's kingdom and will? How do, we, how do we pray for God's kingdom and God's will to be done? I think we often, when we often, we pray things that we have no control or influence over, right? I, I'm guilty of this. And we pray for the healing of someone's sickness. We pray for there to be peace in our world. We pray for our political leaders to change their ways. Or we pray for God to change someone else's heart. And while there are scriptural examples to pray for our leaders, to pray for those in sin, to pray for healing, it is not what should be at the core of our prayer lives and what they're centered around. Think about it for a minute. Do we really think God is in heaven just waiting for one more of us to ask us to ask him to get involved in the Russian-Ukraine crisis before he does something? If we just have one more of us pray that, will he get involved then? Do we really think God is in heaven just waiting for me to ask him to get in, involved in this in a political race, or he's, he's waiting and he's telling how many Republicans are praying to me and how many Democrats are praying to me, and then I'm gonna put them in charge? Do we think God's in heaven waiting for a certain number of people to pray or share the prayer need on Facebook enough or decide to heal somebody or not? Thankfully, this isn't the kind of God we worship. Remember, he is our father in heaven who has a hallowed name. Now, instead of praying for God's Kingdom and will, we should, sh- those things, we should shift our perspective on prayer and start praying it for our own lives, things we can control. And this is what I want you to understand. The key idea is this. Prayer does something in us before it will ever do something for us. Do something in us first before it will ever do something for us. And the implication is this. Prayer isn't a tool to try to align God with the desires of our kingdom and our will but instead it is a tool to align and motivate our hearts towards his kingdom and his will. So how do we pray like this? I think I'm just going to give you three things that I try to do. When I I pray to see God's presence more clearly in my life. God, help me see you more. Not my problems, but help me see you more clearly. Then I, I pray to feel God's compassion more tangibly in my life. God, I want to, I want to feel what you're doing for me. I want to be reminded of your compassion toward me so that I will be motivated to be compassionate toward others. And finally, I pray to experience God's perspective more clearly in my life. God, help me to see things the way you do, not by my own selfishness, my own sin, my own pride, but help me to do this. Give you a closing thought. So is it ever okay to pray for our needs, what we're feeling, what we're wanting, what we're hoping for? to pray for others, to pray for healing, change our God's direction and intervention? Yes. It just should be the starting, should not be the starting point of prayer. It should be birthed out of a correct view of God. Remember, Father in heaven, whose name is hallowed. That's who we're praying to. And a correct view of the kingdom and will of God, that peace and faith through community, compassion, hope, and healing is how we are to respond Who we are to pray to and what we are to pray for should shape the things that we ask God to do. And that's what we're going to look at next week when we talk about God giving us our daily bread, God forgiving us as we forgive others. This keeps us from turning God into a genie in a bottle or a vending machine. Instead, prayer becomes a conduit that God gives us the ability to directly access His presence, His wisdom, His love, His truth, His understanding, His forgiveness, and every aspect of His infinite character. Which brings us to the last idea. God has bigger desires for us than simply restoring our health, our jobs, our finances, our desires. Instead, his desire is to restore our soul. So our question for the day is this. Would you be willing to talk to God about changing your heart before you talk to him about changing your circumstances? That's what praying the kingdom of God and the will of God is. It's changing our heart, restoring our soul, so that then we have a proper view of how to pray for our circumstance. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? This is hard because honestly it's easier to pray for God to do big things that I don't have to get involved with. It's easier for to pray, God would you do this over there? Would you change this person's mind or their heart? Would you cause this to happen? It's much easier to pray for things over there that we have no control of than things in our heart that we're unwilling to submit. So God, we've come to you this morning. Room filled with people that are on different points of their journey with you. But maybe for the first time today learning to understand what it would mean to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, may we pray for community and compassion to grow in our lives, to be people who aren't trying to create bigger differences or draw darker lines or push people apart, but instead drawing people closer our own lives so that we can show compassion and through that compassion and kindness healing and hope can come and your will be accomplished in their life and our life God help us to worry more about the restoring of our souls than what's going to happen in November or next year or the year after or 20 years from now God this moment in our own souls when we need your kingdom and your will in our hearts right now. God, it is our simple prayer today. May your kingdom come. May your will be done.